Welcome to the Blue Side Podcast, brought to you by Cambridge University Science Magazine. In each episode, we delve into the intersections between science, technology, and society, featuring guest researchers who present a fresh perspective on their work, what goes on behind the scenes, and the latest developments in their field. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Blue Side Podcast. In this week's episode, Georgia and I spoke to Professor Sir David Spiegelhalter. He is currently chair of the Winton Centre for Risk and Evidence Communication, based within the Department of Pure Mathematics and Mathematical Statistics at the University of Cambridge. Prior to this, he was the Winton Professor for the Public Understanding of Risk in the Statistical Laboratory within the same department. He completed his undergraduate degree in statistics at the University of Oxford, later moving to University College London to complete his MSc and PhD in Mathematical Statistics under the supervision of Sir Adrian Smith. His research interests include use of Bayesian methods in medical statistics and the monitoring and comparing of clinical and public health outcomes and their associated publication as performance indicators. Currently, he is working on improving the way in which risk and statistical evidence is taught and discussed in society. He has hosted and appeared on various TV and radio shows such as BBC Horizon and Desert Island Discs and has also published several books. Welcome to the podcast, Press Beagle Alter. Could you start us off by telling us a bit more about what you're working on currently? Yes, yeah, well, I mean, the last two years, of course, have been absolutely, you know, flat out on COVID, not doing the analysis, um, but in terms of, you know, the communicating complex statistical concepts to, to the public, which has been a wonderful challenge, writing newspaper articles, doing the media, and so on. And that, you know, fortunately for us all, is winding down rather. And, um, you know, technically, I'm retired. But, you know, there's so many interesting things um, that come my way so my so the latest thing I'm moving on to is to help the statistical team with the infected blood inquiry that's going on about all the people who got infected with HIV and hepatitis in the 1970s and 1980s due to using infected blood and uh, that inquiry is still going on and there's a big statistical issue about just how many people were infected and how many still um, might be alive now and how many might even be alive and not know they've been infected. Yeah, that sounds like a very big and important and weighty topic to be getting involved with and contributing to. And you've also done a lot of work into the COVID inquiries. Some, we're working on COVID stuff as well because, you know, we wrote this book, COVID by Numbers, yeah. Anthony Masters and I, and it looks like now there's a request from the publishers for a second edition as a paperback. And so we've got to bring it up to date, which would be a, a, a good challenge to do and absolutely the right thing to do. And hopefully to get it out uh, you know, at the time of the public inquiry, I think, which would be, would be a good thing as well. But I've, I've got a sort of history of working on public inquiries. That's really how I started moving from being a, a technical statistician, doing the sort of mathematical stuff, um, into being much more sort of public-facing, um, you know, uh, uh, tackling big issues, I suppose, and usually through scandals. I mean, that's where you get public inquiries from. So my first one was the, the um, 1999 or so, and to, up to 2001, it was the Bristol Babies, um, which you're all too young to remember but that was when in, at Bristol Royal Infirmary a lot of babies getting um, 
surgery for their heart disease died mm. um, far more than should have and even though it, it, then it was a very high risk operation um, and so I was heading the statistical team there and we did a lot and uh, we had to present the evidence and crucially present all the evidence while the families of the victims were sitting there in the front row and so that was a good Good, good practice for doing that that communication and then mm. um we a number of us moved on to the shipman inquiry into mm. harold shipman who had murdered you know hundreds of his patients and so we were tasked with looking at how many people had he murdered and could he have been caught earlier which was a very statistical issue mm. so all those things um <clears throat> I, I i found very interesting very valuable work hard work and i think that's probably what got me my kind of honor bit you know, mm. I got OBE and a knighthood and all that kind of stuff. So I think those probably contributed quite a lot to that. Yeah, you're at such a unique and useful and influential position where you're, I guess, the mediary between this, these difficult calculations of risk and statistics and the applications that they're used for. And you're really able to shift the dial on outcomes of really quite important and pivotal events such as COVID or um, the Bristol scandal, as you were discussing. Yeah, but that's why statistics is so wonderful. God, yeah. it's such a great subject. It really is. I, you know, I, I started it at university when the, when the pure maths got too difficult. And I, <clears throat> I moved in statistics not knowing anything about it. And um, I have no regret whatsoever. It's totally suited me and my personality. Mm. I met wonderful people. And, you know, the statisticians, they always say, you know, it's an excuse to play in other people's backyards that you actually... Do, you know, I was trained as a mathematician and, you know, part of a group that had done, you know, fairly some quite technical stuff mm. as the basis for the methods. But then knowing that the reason you're doing this is not to do clever maths. I couldn't care less about that. Mm. Um, it's it's to do things that help people solve real real, real world problems. Yeah. And um, and covid and all these scandals, you know, there's nothing more real world than that. There's people there just sitting, wanting to know the answer. What does it mean for me, you know, my, me and my family who have been harmed or something like that? Mm. And um you know, heaven knows what's going to happen in the COVID inquiry. Ooh, yeah. you know, there's going to be a lot of stats there as well. So, um, you know, it, it, it's it's really is the sort of pointy end, I think, of of uh, a technical subject such as more mathematical statistics. How, when it's really dealing with big problems, and I've enjoyed doing that. How did you get approached to do all these various inquiries and things like? That? Is that just you know someone asked you, or is it you were doing something related and then? Yeah. I, I, yeah, the first one, the Bristol Babies, is what because I was already working with um, uh, surgeons and cardiologists at Great Ormond Street Hospital on mortality rates, um, and we were working with a, a wonderful surgeon, Mark de Laval, who had a shock because he had a, a cluster of failures, as he as he described it, when an operation, a very difficult operation, switch operation, he suddenly had a, cl a cluster of deaths, which really shocked him and took him back. He went and sort of retrained how to do the operation with another expert surgeon. And we wrote a whole book on how uh, to write, how we could have used industrial quality control statistical methods to rapidly detect that he was going off course, that something was mm -hmm. going wrong. And um, and this got a huge amount of attention, partly from the Americans who were amazed that we wrote a paper about the failures that he had, which we, you'd never admit in America. Yeah. And um, partly we did that because we knew that afterwards he'd done a hundred of these operations without a single death. So you know he had you know sorted himself out, and so that got a lot of attention and led to um, a whole lot of work on 
comparing and monitoring mortality rates of surgeons, which was then, at the end of the, the last century, was not a big thing. It was very, it was very um, you know, uh, it was full up with newspaper headlines, which hospital's best and that sort of stuff. And there's a lot of arguments and people not wanting to share their data and things like that. Mm. That's totally different now. Now, all the data's published about surgical mortality rates and nobody, nobody takes any notice of mm. it, which is a wonderful example that having that data openly available stops Mm. All the sort of scandal and, and headlines and ridiculous sort of accusations at people. Also because, in fact, by publishing all that data, the, the surgeons who are not so good retire and everybody starts getting much closer together. Mm. So I was in, in at that process. And so when a scandal of the, uh, in Bristol erupted of these babies, I knew about Bristol years before. Anyway, everyone working in that area knew there were problems at Bristol, except the families at Bristol. Mm who didn't know. Yeah. And um, so it was really, uh, so I got pulled in because they needed a statistician. Once you've done one of these things, then you get asked to do more. Yeah. So that's, that's, the, that's the issue. Once yeah. you've shown you can, in a way, deliver the goods in terms of, use, the crucial thing is using the appropriate amount of technical work. Yeah. So it's more than just adding things up. But you don't want to do vast amounts of technical stuff. Nobody cares. Nobody wants to know. Yeah. So it's trying to judge, and I got better. I think I got better at that. The level of complexity that you need, in other words, and what it is is you you need as much as you need and no more at all, mm. because in the end you've got to explain this to people. Mm. There's no point in doing a whole lot of clever stuff. Do you think there are enough links between academic statisticians and government or? any other stakeholder that might find your skills really useful. Do you think it's sad that it takes or has in the past taken a scandal for someone to reach out and create that relationship between... In statistics, I think it's actually been quite good because statistics has always been a subject that's a close link to applications, Mm. whether in in an industry, but then particularly in medicine, that, um, you know, statisticians worked on randomized clinical trials, developed those ideas, and, uh, you know, uh, 70, 80 years ago, and and then, um, you know, have been hugely involved in the pharmaceutical industry, but also public controlled clinical trials run by the Medical Research Council and so on. So statisticians have taken an absolute leading role there in the science. So there's absolutely no issue about whether you're doing something useful. And yet it's also generated, you know, a lot of technical work. Mm. So I think in statistics, there's always been this close connection, but not in everything. And I think, you know, that's why COVID um, has really shown the power of when academics do get involved in yeah. perhaps more government work. It's the government, I think, that has been um, poor at their relationships with, with academics. Yeah. Um, and they, I think there's been a view, possibly justified, that academics are, you give them lots of money and they go away for three years and then they do something and, and it's not what you wanted anyway and it's too late. Now, COVID has changed that completely because the academics have been churning stuff out weaker, you know, wh- yeah. whether it's epidemiological modelling or a COVID infection survey or something. The academics have been working their absolute watsits off to an absurd extent, doing stuff incredibly rapidly, getting the preprints out, you know, within a week or something like that, getting it published essentially on a preprint server, mm. taking that responsibility. Jobs that would normally take at least a year they've been doing, you know, uh, you know, just in, in weeks. Yeah. Why do you think that, do you, do you know why that hasn't happened earlier, that connection? I think it does take a bit of a crisis for those yeah. barriers to break down, for everyone to start, you know, you know, people have been working 
unbelievably hard and feeling they have they should also the demand that the government there's money for it to, to uh, there's been a lot of money available for things yeah. like the covid infection survey and um, and just the government demand the fact that academics were doing analyses which were going straight into number 10 you know straight into within hours they were being seen by the senior policy makers mm -hmm. well you know that's pretty cool if that's yeah. not what you normally get and so um that definitely has has driven um a uh, a change and i hope that that change you know it, well, it can't carry on at this sort of um crisis level but um i hope that is a permanent change in terms of the relationships between academics and um and not just statisticians but you know every sort of um you know people with academic technical skills and not just industry but government as well yeah because yeah, i guess obviously because like you say people have been doing a lot of research and they've been publishing it like not well, pretty much immediately as soon yeah. as they get the results out there yep. but i guess what you also then is have a lot of potentially conflicting information out there don't you or you know one week they someone <clears> says this and then the next week someone says something that doesn't necessarily match entirely that is still a thing i mean before um uh, before the pandemic, um, preprints were was a real dirty word in in the you know science communication and and to press release a preprint thing mm. was the most unforgivable sin because there'd be no peer review. People had just written something yeah. and then did a press which would have been unforgivable. Happens all the time now. Yeah. We you know we haven't been able to wait for the publication, the peer review process, which is mm. ludicrously slow because you know it takes a lot of time and effort. Um, so uh, I, I think we still haven't settled into how that's going to work um, because it does mean there's a lot of, uh, I mean, there's always been a peer review isn't perfect. It's not even that great. I think you know, there's a lot of whole lot of really poor stuff appears mm -hmm. in so-called peer reviewed journals and gets press released and gets media coverage. But now that's there's even more in a way open science, which is great mm. in terms of the rapidity of results. But it's going to make the job of screening that, in particular what gets into the media, um, even more challenging. So that extends now beyond the COVID oh, yeah, preprints. Yeah, so now it's... yeah, it's interesting because now we're seeing <clears throat> um, a return to what I would call the, the old cats cause cancer stories that I've dealt with for years before. You know, I, they come in all the time that people make a claim about some I don't know, talcum powder giving you breast cancer, you know, etc. All these uh, links, associations, correlations. And um, we've always had quite a lot of those, and now they're even more. And they're coming out with conference preprints and you know all this sort of stuff, and they're getting press released. Um, and so that screening, I mean, I've been part of that through working with the Science Media Centre, which is the most I don't know, just wonderful organisation, with a you know gets you get this stuff under embargo at the same time as the journalists do and get a chance to make a comment on it and a lot of those comments are aiming to keep it out of the media mm. i spent more time before covid keeping stories out of the media than anything else you know and you you've done well if something doesn't appear wow <laughs> you know, if you're because if you're so rude about a study and say this is absolutely terrible yeah. then the, the journalist will where the editor might want it and then you start an argument up between the editor wants it because it's clickbait and the journalist knows it's rubbish mm. and so if you've got a good journalist and the science journalists in this country i think are extremely good um they they can keep it out yeah, yeah. Mm. um i just want to jump to some of the really interesting um books and talks that you've given um so firstly i saw that you had at the cambridge science festival 
um, done a talk on how to spot a shabby statistic. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then similarly, an Observer article, a point guide, nine-point guide to spotting a dodgy statistic. Yeah, yeah. For our humble listeners in the humble lane band, do you, oh, <laughs> you describe well, Yeah, well, what I call it, naughty numbers, shabby statistics and dodgy data. Yeah, yeah. I do a lot of this stuff. And, you know, it's similar to what more or less the wonderful Radio 4 program does with Tim Harford, which I've been on quite a lot. And, um, and Tim Harford's written this very good book about spotting you know dodgy data or also spotting good data um and um i i, I think it is terribly important what you might call sort of data literacy critical abilities of everybody in society from you know um citizens through kids and things like that to know about this because numbers do have an emotional impact you see a number oh you know it's a number well actually is it any good or not you know can you believe it and the the I, I've been influenced by people. I used to think very much of this as a technical issue. You know, what, what, is, what is the source of the data? Can you know what's the un, you know, what's the evidence exactly? I've now I, that is important, but I now have have learned, I think, from others that I now my first question is I've taken this from Tim Hartford. How does it make me feel? Hmm. Do you, you've got to look inside yourself. What's my re- emotional response to this number? Because by knowing by observing that. You know, does it make you feel safe, reassured? Are you makes you nervous and things like that? By ne- getting an insight into that, you have an insight into how you are being manipulated. Mm. Because what you can guarantee is the person who's telling you the story with a number is trying to manipulate your emotions at mm. that point. They are trying to either frighten you or reassure you, say, "Oh, isn't this a big number? Or isn't this a small number?" It's very, very rarely that it's being presented as a as a piece of information. Mm. So the first thing is to work out why am I being told this number? What is the aim of the person who's telling me this number? In other words, question the trustworthiness of the source, even before looking at the number. Mm. So I do that now. Even before kind of checking the number, I look at who's telling me this and what's in it for them. Yeah, that really reminds me of that book, Thinking Fast and Slow, by Daniel Kahneman, uh, that humans are not very good intuitive statisticians. Mm, mm, And mm. we used to think that humans were uh, quite reasonable generally um, and quite objective, but uh, they presented all this evidence to suggest that there were a whole lot of biases written into the physiology of our brains and the way that we take in data and process and make sense of it, which, uh, you know, means it's all the more useful and important to do these sorts of, Analysis. No, those have been well explored now by, and that's why all my work now is psychology, mainly with psychologists. Mostly, the team I work with here in the department are nearly all psychologists, yeah. um, because you need to have those insights into numbers. There's a lovely quote that I use in my book um, from Nate Silver, who wrote *The Signal and the Noise*, where he said, "You know, numbers do not speak for themselves. We imbue them with meaning." Mm. You know, people think of numbers as cold, hard facts. Oh, no. You know, maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong, but the crucial thing is the emotional response they generate. And so, how they, how that number is framed, you know, simply, you know, do you talk about mortality rates or do you talk about survival rates? Because a two percent mortality rate and a ninety-eight percent survival rate sound completely different yeah. to you. So that that sort of framing, which you know, psychologists have explored that hugely about positive and negative framing and how that it influences our emotional response is they're all the time in almost every number. So context is everything. Mm. I always say, as soon as you see lots of zeros in a number, I think someone's trying to con me. <laughs> Someone is trying to con me because you can't count. If you, once you have to count zeros, 
you've lost it. Yeah. You've lost it. You've got no idea. It's just a big number, million, schmillion, who cares? Mm. You know, it's hopeless. Yeah. And so unless you, you, anything more than, I'd say, if you're very numerate, you can probably grasp up to a thousand. But for most people, a hundred is definitely the most they can get mm. a feeling for. And even then, it's best arranged as a hundred dots to see to see that. So um, any number, essentially any number more than a hundred, I I'm suspicious about if it's trying to speak for itself. It needs then a comparator. You know, the whole thing is this a big number? Mm. And you need some story, some context, some trends, some comparisons in order to judge that number. Yeah, because that's quite. Because I guess as we kind of move towards, there's a lot more data. You get, you know, you get data for everything nowadays. You know, therefore statistics will follow because that's a kind of an interpretation of the data potentially as well, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think COVID is, you know, that we've had more numbers in the news than, than ever before, yeah. and um, and some of those have been pretty shabby. Um, and so yeah, it's this crucial thing of trying to get people, you don't want people to be cynical about numbers, say, oh, lies, damn lies, all that nonsense. You don't want them to be cynical and just reject it, reject them, because then all, what have you got then? You've just got your gut feelings, and they're pretty unreliable. Mm. But you need to use some of your gut feelings to judge those numbers. You know, to, you need to be sceptical, I'd say, but cautious, sceptical, mm. not cynical. Mm. Um, and that's kind of what I suppose we try to encourage. Mm. Yeah. yeah, you mentioned previously the importance of understanding the appropriate level of complexity yeah. Yeah. when explaining your work in different contexts and through different methods of communication to different audiences. How important do you think this skill is for budding statisticians coming through, doing PhDs? Do you think it's a skill that most young statisticians have or that, that most are working on? Uh, is it something that needs to be more developed or what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, no, I think it takes a while. I mean, it's something you learn as a sort of apprenticeship. Yeah. Um, because I would encourage, I like to encourage all students just do as much maths as possible. In other words, do the difficult stuff until you can't do it anyway, until it just gets too difficult. So, you know, for mathematicians, anybody coming up through science, I say do as much maths as possible until you really feel you can't take any more. And in statistics, I really encourage people to do mathematical statistics. Because it's only if you feel happy, in order to say this is complex enough, you have to feel happy doing things that are more complex. In other words, you have, to see, you have to be able to do something but actually choose to step back from it in order to do what you present and what you communicate. Mm. So that's a lesson I learned quite early on from a very good colleague that you always do more than you need because then you can be confident that, say, that in telling people, I could do a whole lot more and I know how to do it, but actually it won't make much difference. Mm. So there's no point in me doing it. Yeah. So you, you, I think I would encourage all students to do the technical stuff. Come on, get your head in there. It's difficult because you, know, you won't want to do it later on. Then later on, <clears throat> as you start working in the real world more, um, you have to then develop that judgment about how, what, you know, how technical you need to be, which, mm. as I said, you, it's as far as you need to go and no further. You need to try to make it always as simple as you can, but no simpler. In, mm. So Einstein said that? I can't remember. Yes, I think it was. I think was. it was, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so, um, and that's just, a, a lot of that is tradecraft. You know, it's sort of, um, it's an apprenticeship. It comes through experience, I think, in working with people, watching how other people do it. It's taken me a long time. Mm. And I still don't know if I'm that good at it, but 
it's uh, I know that's the skill I use most of all. Yeah, because yeah. I guess it's about kind of tailoring to your audience. Because if you you're yeah. doing it to you know an audience of you know the general public, yeah. you could go in depth into whatever yeah. you know statistical methods, but and yeah. they'll just be like, no idea what's going exactly. on. Exactly, and and you know everyone who teaches learns that that there's no point in talking over the heads of your audience, and you know so when I'm teaching you know students about statistics you have to know their mathematical level mm -hmm. and teaching 1b here yeah. is great you know they're you know they, they're they're happy with the maths really mm -hmm. um and there i'm trying to much more you know communicate the concepts behind it mm -hmm. so you just, everything of course has to be tuned to the um to the audience and um I, I, yeah, no, it's a good, it's a useful skill. And that means listening to the audience. Ah, yes, I have learned, you know, working in communications, I have done for 15 years, I suppose. Uh, somebody said, you know, the first rule of communication is to shut up and listen. You've got, it's a two-way process. You have to understand who you're talking to. Because the other thing about communication, people say, oh, how should I communicate this? I say, I can't tell you. There's no correct way to communicate. You have to tell me, who are your audience and what are you trying to communicate? What are you trying to get them? What's your, in a way, what's your success measure? Mm. And then we can explore how you might best achieve that. But without that, I could, there's no perfect way, there's no right way to do it. Mm. Um, so you've, ha uh, just touching on that, so you've had this podcast recently oh, yeah. where yeah. you've, so you've been, you've interviewed statisticians. Um, how, how has that gone? Yeah, yeah, it's quite fun. Well, you know about podcasts. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I worked with a, a, a really good guy, Lane Goodman, who produced it and got the guests and, <clears throat> in a way, taught me what to say, which is great. One of the problems is they're so interesting, the people I've had, that I kind of lose my, in my you know, interviewer objectivity and start going, whoa, really? Cool, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I'm having a chat at a pub. Like us right now. Yeah, no, yeah. So um, we've had some wonderful, wonderful people really willing to come on and, and discuss stuff. Yeah. And it's, again, not discussing the technical side. Um, it's much more to do with, and it's about communication of, you know, risky talk, it's called, you know, but, you know, about communicating risk mm. and stats to some extent as well and um, how people do it and talk about it you know whether it's about vaccines or whether it's about policy whether it's about climate and all that kind of stuff in particular we got an obsession about communicating uncertainty you know how do you admit you don't know and and etc etc and we're also obsessed with trustworthy communication yeah. which is you know the idea of that you're not trying to manipulate somebody um, you know, you're actually trying to give a balanced view, mm. and we want to explore that. Are people consciously trying to do that or mm. not? Yeah. Mm. No, quite, that's quite interesting as well. Because I mean, you've done obviously you do you have this podcast and stuff, but also you've done other things. You know, you've done Desert Island Discs. Mm. Also, I saw you've also been on Winter Wipeout, oh, which yeah. I found. <laughs> yeah, th th those those two are the absolute highlights of my career. They're the things I I know I'm proudest of above everything else. So winter wipeout was great. I mean, the I, I yeah, I, I don't know. You need to be a certain generation because it's not on television anymore. Mm. Um, do you know winter wipeout? I actually no, I wasn't. I didn't. You're didn't grow age. up in this country. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, 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 I remember watching. Well, it. exactly I because it. it's, it's. I mean, the, the target audience I think are sort of eight-year-olds, but I loved it as an adult. And um, you know, it's this obstacle course in Argentina because you, you fly to Buenos Aires to do it. It's quite tricky. And you go off this obstacle course and fall in the mud and get pushed, fly through the air into the water and, like and the winner comes back with 10,000 quid after a weekend as 20 of you bad. start. Yeah, so it's worth having a go. But I didn't, I knew I wasn't going to win, but I didn't want to go out in a humiliating manner. I didn't want to be sobbing in the mud. I wanted to actually get through into the 
the next round. So, um, so I worked hard at it. I, I, I practiced and I, I trained and uh, I did okay. So as my, my, and it's cause the film of that is so, it's on YouTube and it's so great that I use it in all my school's talks. It gives me a bit of credibility. Mm. Hear me, see me flying through the air, whirling round. <laughs> landing in the water that's diverse skills yeah yeah Yeah, exactly and also i think it kind of shows you know because i imagine some people they might want to portray themselves as they're a very serious character and you know it's (laughs) it's good to have people you know you don't have to be a serious you're like constantly i'm an academic and this is what yeah it's nice to see there's another side to you yeah i i I, i'm in a fortunate position that i have got enough credibility as a serious person Mm -hmm. that i think i can do it and so when i went to the audition i went in as i'm professor risk you know, from Cambridge University, and I was wearing sort of full academic dress with a, a black shoes, a big gown, mortarboard, OBE hanging down, and all that sort of stuff. So I was really playing it up. Mm-hmm. And so I was Professor Spiegelder OBE. Now I could do it as Professor Sir Sir David Spiegelder OBE. Well, I'm sure I'd get on like a shot now if I went for it. But, um, and uh, it's just I did want to do it. Yeah, it my daughter encouraged me. We both got on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's, pretty, that's, that's just really cool. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what else to say apart from that. Um, another question I was just thinking that I really wanted to ask. I'm, I, I'm really interested to hear, just uh, touching on the COVID um, work that you did, um, whether you thought that in, with 2020 vision of hindsight, there could have been um, better links or, or, or things that could have been done to ensure that there was a better link between... you know research work and government work to maybe achieve better outcomes or or whether yeah i mean i don't know i mean that's the whole science advice system and i i'm not an expert on that i wasn't on i went to one sage meeting but i wasn't on sage i mean they and they brought in lots of people from all over the place um, I think they, you know, could have been more diverse advice because, you know, that science advice they're getting is very limited into what yeah. it's about. I mean, I don't know what advice they were getting about the education, you know, the harms to kids of closing schools, for example, in yeah. terms of education, about, you know, um, inequalities and so on. Um, I'm not sure what advice they were getting about that. Um, so I think that the, uh, there could have been a more diverse set of, of science advice. Um, I, th- I, I thought, you know, I thought the actual senior advisors, you know, Patrick Balance and Chris Whitty, I think they're extraordinarily good people, really, really trustworthy people. So, and everything is in a sense filtered through them. So I think that was, um, uh, was, was done very well. Um, so I, I'm sure it could have been improved and that will be, they'll go over that in the, in the public inquiry. Um, but in the end, it's the politicians make the decisions. The, the, the thing that really, this phrase following the science is such utter bollocks i mean it really should never anyone who uses that again don't trust them mm. don't trust them because it means they they're they've got the wrong idea of science they think that science tells you what to do and then they're trying to shift responsibility onto the scientists mm. so that's a, a anyone who uses that phrase you've got to be really suspicious of mm. science doesn't tell you what to do mm. i would say it's not it's not out in front leading the way is wandering along beside you muttering to itself saying well if you do this that might happen that might happen i don't know and uh, and that's what it's doing yeah 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 it can give you numbers but i guess there's still going to be value judgments i'd say that the, 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 the policy decisions are require bringing together evidence from wide range of sources about all sorts of impacts of what your possible impacts of what you might do using huge amounts of value judgments and and just judgment yeah because of the uncertainty and particularly in covid because um, in the end, the pandemic is driven by people's behaviour. That everything, everything yeah. that happens, 
is through people's behaviour. Yeah. That's how, because it's, it's a transmissible disease, so mm. it depends what people do. Mm. That is the least controllable and predictable thing. So the idea that we could predict what was going to happen, I think, is pretty is pretty nonsensical. And that, um, and that either both in terms of behaviour and in terms of outcomes. And so that that is was so important, and that is not something that science can tell you. Mm. It can't tell you how you're going to react. We, you know, in fact, you know, I think a huge amount of behaviour are influenced by almost off-the-cuff copy co comments by Chris Whitty at a press briefing had a huge influence, I think, on people's behaviour. Mm. Well, you know, that, where's, the, where's the science in that? Yeah, I get... The thing is, at the end of the day, it's kind of all... It comes from everything. Everyone takes their own what they get given, right? At the end of the... Kind of evidence-wise, you know... Yep. Yes, you get given numbers, but if you don't, you know, necessarily know what those numbers mean... Uh, absolutely, and I think whether you're an individual making a decision about your own life, or uh, a minister making a decision on, in a sense, a political decision on behalf of the of the country, the issues are exactly the same. That you have got multiple sources of evidence, um, and then you have to, you know, use your own judgment on it. And what what we'd say is that, yeah, that's fine. That's of course it's a matter of judgment. That doesn't mean you just sort of use your gut feeling. Mm -hmm. So it's it's this, you know, Kahneman idea of thinking fast and slow. When you're faced with a difficult decision, you th should be thinking slowly. It's not, but it's not a purely rational process. You can't suddenly say it's going to be a cold, rational. Decision. That's impossible because you don't know. You don't know what people's behaviour will be. You don't so much. You don't know. Mm. Don't understand. But don't. You must try to do it as much as possible. To yeah. Think slowly. Look at the evidence and consider it in a in a balanced way. That there will be benefits and harms and positives and negatives and so on. So that's why I think you know the absolute necessity is uh, is for the people who communicate that evidence to do so in a trustworthy way mm. and not to try to manipulate any audience, whether it's us as individuals or or politicians. Mm -hmm. so do you think kind of that because obviously statistics and like you say a lot of statistics have been thrown. Is there more place in society for discussing? Like, is it something that people need? kind of a bit more education of when you're in schools and things like that so yeah. people have a bit more of an understanding later on yeah I mean there's a huge discussion now about how in the educational system can you fit in what everybody now realizes is an essential skill for citizenship and and it, which is essentially data literacy now it's both in critiquing the numbers we hear and having some ability at manipulating those numbers and as soon as you start you know the employer's number one demand now is for people who can do you know basic modeling analysis uh, happy with spreadsheets do do yeah. quantitative work it doesn't have to be hugely technical and then of course you've got people who want really technical skills but i'm talking about you know that so many jobs require that the basic is more than numeracy it's it's a it's a facility with number and with um you know, with models which are spreadsheets and models, um, that is the most vital skill that every employer wants. And yet it's not really taught, taught in schools very well, especially mm. the ability to sort of critique numbers. You know, it's not part of maths. It's the, what I'm talking about is not part of maths. Mm. It uses maths, it uses some maths, but it's not part of maths. Where does it belong? Everyone's run on a committee at the Royal Society that's supposed to be making some suggestions about this but um, it's really tricky and every country around the world is trying to deal with this mm -hmm. and you know is it a separate do you have data science as a separate subject or do you try to spread it across the curriculum because actually mm. it belongs everywhere mm. what do you do with I like the term data science 
I really do. So what do you do with data science? As long as it includes, which includes data literacy in the sense of ability to critique numbers. In other words, it's not all right, wrong. There is judgment involved in it. Mm. It's using numbers in society and in daily life. Yeah. So, um, well, you know, your ideas, anyone who can tell me where that belongs in the education curriculum, I'll be very grateful to be, yeah. to be told. I guess tough, it feels like there's always going to be a lag between sort of the technology of the time and the education of the time. <laughs> yes, yeah, and quite rightly, but, but the, 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 we shouldn't be too sort of fashion bound in terms of our education, but it is a problem. It's a particular problem in this country because, you know, even recent reforms have made it even more siloed and exam based. Yeah. The, the curriculum mm. um, and uh, the stuff I'm talking about is is you know that's not what it's like it's much more to do with perhaps with teamwork with projects yeah. with judgment and so on uh, not really not so easily reduced to simple exam questions mm. yeah um, really quickly before we go um, wanted to ask you oh, about it. your that you're world champion in loop. Oh yes, um, yeah, yeah. No world champion. There's only ever been one world championship, and it was only from a few people they dragged up at some festival. I mean, it doesn't matter if there's only one. You're still yeah, exactly. world champion. Still I got my, I, no, I got it at home. It's the crummiest little, you know, trophy. Aww. It's some bit of polystyrene painted gold. So loop is this um, pool played on an elliptical table, sort of, you know, with um, with with just one pocket at one of the on focus of the ellipse and with the ellipse it's got a special thing that if you can hit the ball over the other focus of the black, the black dot then wherever direction you hit it when it bounces off the, the cushion it should go into the other it should go into the hole because every um, you know that's that's the property of an ellipse yeah so it, it provides you with an extra way of playing on this and I use some a bit of skill mathematical skill and a bit of ill-spent youth playing <laughs> snooker rather a lot when I was young um, and uh, I managed to win this competition <laughs> and, and I don't think there's ever been another one there's only one table in the whole world so it is quite limited oh wow <laughs> you don't have one at home no no no, no. yeah made, mocked one up to practice on yeah you? yeah no 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 it's, can't do that can't do that yeah thank you so much for uh, talking with us today um, it's been great to hear your insights and um, yeah thank you so much yeah it's been it's been fascinating and yeah it's a real pleasure to speak to you thank you very much Oh, well, thanks so much. Great questions. Really enjoyed it. And I'm sorry I just go on and on and on. No, no, no don't worry about that. It's, it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Georgia and I had a great time talking to Professor Spiegelhalter, and we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did when we were talking to him. We'd love to hear what you thought of this week's episode. You can get in touch via Twitter on at BlueSciPod or by email at podcast at bluesci.co.uk. To keep updated with our new episodes or listen to some of our previous ones, you can subscribe to the podcast on Anchor or whatever platform you want to use. Mm-hmm.